Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 67. We're glad to have you guys here with us today as we discuss some more current events and our takes on them. In this case, uh, we are not going to be talking about the uh, new COVID variant. Um, I think it's a... I think it's a Megatron is the name of the new variant. Am I getting that right, Dan? Basically, except that doesn't then spell moronic, which is the con- my favorite theory about it, right? Omicron and being. And anyway, don't, <laughs> don't, nobody should, at this point, nobody should worry about a new variant unless it is first proven to be you know, significantly more dangerous, which it's almost guaranteed not to be because mm-hmm. that's not the way genetic variation tends towards. No, the only the only thing newsworthy about the the Omicron variant is uh is how crazy everyone's reactions to the Omicron variant is with so little information. You know, on, on one hand they're saying, Oh, we have no idea, you know, you know, I think Fauci said something about how immunity may not be effective against it. And on the same side they're saying this is why everyone has to get vaccinated because of this new imminent threat that <laughs> that we know very little about about how how dangerous it actually is. And it's something we've talked about before about the Delta variant and other variants that there are going to be variants and there are going to be varying degrees of dangerousness. But in general, this this virus should be getting less dangerous, not more dangerous over time with these variants. That in general, these variants may be more or less contagious, but it doesn't mean that they're more dangerous necessarily. Right. Yeah, they should be getting less. It will, should be, will be the long-term trend. So I'm not too worried about it. We're not going to waste an episode right now talking about that. That may change. You know, we make promises about not talking about COVID. And next thing you know, we're talking about <laughs> COVID. But today we're going to hold true to that promise. That that minute was all you get. Uh, in, instead, today what we want to talk about is some uh, criminal cases as, uh, as I guess you could say, um, follow up to some of the stuff with, uh, with Rittenhouse. We want to talk about two interesting cases that have been receiving media attention since the verdict. Um, the first is uh, Crystal Kaiser, and the second is uh, Daryl Brooks. Um, the second one everyone should be familiar with, Daryl Brooks is the uh, suspect in the, uh, how do you pronounce that, uh, the city name, uh, Waukesha? I, Waukesha? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. I don't know. But any anyways, the 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 man who drove his uh his vehicle into a Christmas parade, killing several individuals and injuring many many more, what was clearly a horrible horrible tragedy. But has has raised some really concerning concerning questions about the uh, justice system because he was actually out on bail. Um, five days, he was released on bail five days before the attack, and the bail was a $1,000 bail, so a very insignificant sum in relation to, to what he had been charged with. You know, he's actually a, a has um, several pending charges. Um, I'm not sure if he's been convicted of anything. I, I, I haven't followed up on that enough, Dan, but I know he at least has several pending charges, including violent charges he was uh shooting at some individuals as they were driving away may have attempted to run someone over (laughs) pretty serious charges for someone to be to be out walking a few days later with basically no no restrictions right yeah he has been convicted of previous crimes um obviously he's served whatever time Mm -hmm, was necessary mm -hmm. for those his criminal record is very long and and including things he's been convicted of, others he's been accused of, and they didn't have sufficient evidence. Um, but yes, he he has, as you were suggesting, attempting to run someone over. This is not some like, oh, he's got outstanding parking tickets, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, yeah. These are the kind of things we're like, you know, if he did that, maybe he shouldn't be wandering around. The kind of things yeah. that make you make you wonder, let alone, let alone on a $1,000 bail. And then the uh, the other case that I want to talk about that that ties in is uh, is Crystal Kaiser, who uh, who killed who killed a her 
alleged sex trafficker three years ago when she was 17. And since that time, she spent about two years in jail until uh, 2020, where she, an advocacy group, was actually able to raise enough money for her $400,000 bail that she was able to get out on bail. Um, she's still waiting still waiting for for her day in court and is attempting to to hopefully use a self defense in her defense after um after the Kyle Rittenhouse case it's gained a lot of media attention as a lot of people are calling for for her to be acquitted after Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted on self defense grounds yeah it's interesting to see people who were involved in that case seeing the outcome of Kyle Rittenhouse and being like wait Wait, maybe there's hope. You know, maybe mm-hmm. she can plead self-defense. Which, which, first of all, is is fantastic. It's exactly the kind of uh, the kind of response to the Rittenhouse verdict that I think people should be having. Yeah. Um, but why do we want to talk about these two cases, Dan? These two cases are interesting because it sparks a broader conversation into how the justice system works, and and how. I mean, from start to finish, you know, bail is a huge part of that is what happens to people before, before they're, before they're tried. You know, I mean, you look at the, the Crystal Kaiser case and when you've got someone who's spent two years in jail before ever, before ever having their case heard, you know, by, by my account, that seems like a serious problem, right? Mm -hmm. And then on the flip Mm -hmm. side, you have someone who five days after being released on bail, basically, you know, a a super insignificant bail, you know, the $1,000 bail is not a real restriction with the way bail bonds are set up. That's so low that basically anyone can get out. Right. And so basically, you know, he's, he's, can, he is charged with serious offenses and then released almost immediately and then goes and kills, you know, at least five or six people and, and potentially others who are still many, many others who are injured. And and the question is, is how does this make any sense, right? How, how right. does this make any sense? And what is the solution? It's even more ridiculous when you see that one of the things that he has been guilty of in the past is uh, running out on his bail. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's no bueno. <laughs> Why? Why would there be such a such a low bail for someone who's who's done that? Now the thing is, is that is I know a lot of conservatives are looking at this and they're saying this is why bail reform is a problem. You know, people tried bail reform, and now look at these people who are dead and these people who are injured uh-huh. because of bail reform. Bail reform is directly responsible. Yeah, this this ties in part into what's been happening in the in the years with George Floyd. With the after the death of George Floyd, where you have all these people uh, committing petty crimes involved in the riots, and you'd have people like actors and actresses and other public figures with some money who would say who would go in and they would pay all of the bail mm-hmm. uh, things for those people, and it, and it's also the idea you know the, it's, there's a general trend that hey wait a second a system of bail in which you assign assign some kind of charge to this. To yeah, uh, a dollar amount, a dollar amount favors the rich. Mm-hmm. And it gives it it's it's discriminatory against poor people in some sense. It it particularly penalizes them. So yeah, so a lot of these ideas about bail reform, as you're saying, that the trend in a lot of states is for bail to go down, especially uh, I think Democrats in particular. Of the two major parties, Democrats push that a lot. Um, others also push that. Um, and so, yeah, as you're saying, people are like, well, here's the consequences of that, right? You mm-hmm. get you get to the point where someone like this, who sh- who clearly should not have been let out, is able to pay a thousand dollar bail and gets out, and then does something terrible. Mm-hmm. And- mm-hmm. No, and 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 the answer is not simply to to raise the dollar amount. In my opinion, um, a great example of this is is Kyle Rittenhouse himself. Is let's say that things hadn't happened the way they did. Let's say Kyle Rittenhouse was actually guilty of murder and that he really did travel to Kenosha just to kill people. Like that was his real purpose is he's actually secretly a sociopath who just wanted to kill people. You know, he gets charged, he gets out on bail, you know, because he's, he's a bit of a celebrity, you know, regardless of what the bail amount was, even if it was a million dollars, he'd be able to raise it. You know what I mean? Not him right, himself, right. but, but 
Yeah, well, he's, he, it became political, and exactly. people on his political side would have raised the money. And and so then he's so then he's out on bail, and he's he's free to do whatever he wants, obviously within limits according to bail. But in practice, he's free to do whatever he wants, and he could have gone on a killing spree. Like I said, assuming that he really was some kind of uh, you know serial killer in the making, he could have gone on and he could have killed a bunch of people. Yeah. And and the bail system, as it's currently set up, would have done nothing to prevent that. <laughs> right, right. And it could be it could be worse. Like if he, uh, you can imagine someone who clearly did, uh, you know, who who you know the case is going to find them guilty, mm-hmm. and then they get out on bail, and they go and and they're like, well, I'm going to be behind bars for a long period of time, maybe for life. In a short time, what do I have to lose? Yeah, <laughs> or be- or whatever whatever reason they committed those crimes in the first place is still there. Whether it's it's f- financial yeah, desperation some kind of or, or yeah. some kind of mental instability, you know, which is I mean, those two are often it's usually both. You know, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's some kind of serious issue combined with a different kind of serious issue, and the end result is is that is that they may go back and do something else, and. And bail is not always an effective deterrent against that. Yeah. Yeah, really. And you mentioned this to me, and this makes a lot of sense. If you just say, what is the reasoning behind bail to begin with? It's to give them some added incentive to show up to court. Yeah, to show back up for the trial. Because you, you, you pay this amount of money, and you get it back if you show up. It it's very clearly has a limited purpose. Mm-hmm. But... That's not all of the things that should be considered mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>? No, <laughs> Just, and and there is and there is a precedent for considering the the threat to to society in general, but it's pretty it's 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 very very rare for someone to be held without bail. Like it has to be an extreme case. Yeah, for them, yeah. for them to, for the judge to say, there is no chance of you getting out until the trial. You know, I mean, it almost, it almost never happens except for the most extreme cases. You know, people who yeah, are I, people who are getting tried for murder often get out on bail. That's that's. <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, that's Kyle Rittenhouse. You know what I mean? Yes, he was he, yeah, was, yeah, he yeah. was charged with murder. He's being and charged he was with out murder. on bail. He didn't spend the last year and a half in jail. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And it is that is something left to the discretion of the judge in the case, is that correct? I I for the most part, yeah. I think that's I think that's right. And that would make sense that in in extreme cases, most judges probably rule one way, but it seems like seems like the tendency now is in many other cases to to set some kind of bail mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and for that bail to be lower and lower. And so, and, and yeah, and so, so, so where, so where does that come in with my opinion? My opinion is simple is that I think the biggest priority when you're, when you're, <laughs> there, there's a few parts to it. Number one, your biggest priority when you're looking at, when you're looking at bail, I don't think should be whether or not they're coming back for the trial. I think it should be what is their what is their risk to society. And mm-hmm. and we need a system that that does something to protect society while also protecting people's rights and the current bail system doesn't do it. You know, and and I think a great example of that is the Crystal Kaiser case where she spends 2 years in jail because no one cares about her. And then people hear about her case and they raise money, you know, to hit hit the $400,000 bond and she's able to go free. Her risk to society never changed, you know, in those three years, two in, pri- two in jail and one outside of jail. Nothing changed when people heard about her story. You know, she yeah. was she was just as as dangerous before as she was after. Yeah. What changed was her financial situation. And that's clearly a problem with the justice system. Because the the end result of that justice system is the people that don't have money, don't have connections, and don't have anyone on their side. In other words, the people in the worst possible situations 
are going to spend their time before their trials behind bars and the people who have money or who have connections or who have people who hear about their story and are sympathetic towards them for whatever reason, whether it's because they appear innocent or because their story is a sad one in the case of, of Crystal Kaiser or because of a political reason like Kyle Rittenhouse, which are not great reasons for them for <laughs> right. them walking none of, free. None of these have anything to do with justice. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. None, of, none of these have anything to do with human rights or or any of the other moral things on which we judge government action. It's this is all arbitrary side facts that are determining what may happen to someone for years and or worse, what would allow them to be in a situation where they then go and do something crazy like drive a drive a vehicle through a parade. Yeah. And now we don't we don't want either of these. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so so what's the solution? Well I think that there's there's a few things that there's a few things that I'd like to see happen. Number one, let, let me propose the the what I would guess is the standard Republican immediately. Well, clearly, bail should be way higher, or you should just have a a standard where you say anyone who's committed something violent or something like that, except for Kyle. Um, except for <laughs> that's right, because that's the because <laughs> he's our hero. We can't can't when, have him spend a year and a half in jail. <laughs> Well played, sir. My cat starts rubbing her face on my microphone. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, you can, continue, you can, continue. You can get back in my lap, kitty, but you cannot uh, cannot do that. Um, so we'll, what we'll do is we'll just say, for the good of society, these people are going to be in jail without bail. No, we'll just deny them bail, yeah. right? If bail is the problem, we'll deny them bail, and mm-hmm. that, will, that will solve the problem. And yeah, and obviously, when push comes to shove, they're, shove, they're going to realize that's a terrible idea. And, and <laughs> the reason so. it's a terrible idea is really not that complicated. It's because our whole system is set up that you're innocent until proven guilty. And if you're having people serve multiple year uh, jail time before ever being convicted of something, I mean, that's a long time. I mean, that's most offenses... I mean, especially even even violent offenses up until you get to things like murder or more more extreme violent offenses only have several year prison times anyways. You know what I mean? So serving several years in prison before you even get to the hearing, before you even get to the trial, is a serious violation of of people's rights. And so it therefore doesn't doesn't work. But but the uh the other answer, the the liberal answer is okay, we'll just set bail at one thousand dollars or get rid of cash bail altogether and just ask them nicely to come back for their trial. Because the reality is, and the liberals are right about this, that for for most people, the reason they come back to the trial is not because of the ten thousand dollar bond. It's because if they don't come back for the trial, they become a wanted fugitive. Excuse me, words are hard. They become a wanted fugitive and get hunted down, you know, by, you know, by U.S. Marshals. I mean, if it's a serious case, they get they they get found and they get brought back anyways. You know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. like if you don't pay the bond, they're like, okay, well, I guess we'll drop the whole case. <laughs> you know, the, the law is still going to be enforced whether or not you have a bond in place. It was just to provide an additional incentive. And I also think that the original idea for 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 this bond system was in a world where it was much easier to skip bond and disappear back into society. We live in a world today, a, a digitalized world, where who you are, your identity is verified on a regular basis and is something you need in order to perform basically every single function. Right. You're, you're best living a, a shell, a fraction of a, the life you could be living if you, if you do manage to get through it. I mean, you would have to have serious connections to, to get the, all, all the IDs to live a full life yeah, yeah, and yeah, fly yeah, under the radar. Theoretically, yes, yeah. you could get those, but you'd have to be, have such connections or such wealth that you'd be able right. to pay the bond anyways. Right. So those are the people we aren't we're talking about generally here anyways are the right. people who can't afford these bonds, who can't afford <laughs> That's a, it's a good point. You know what I mean? If you can afford all of that, right. then it doesn't matter anyways. Right. And the, and the point of going through all this is because hopefully if you're if you're listening to us and you're thinking about it through for yourself, you're starting to see that the problem is actually not with the bail 
or with denying bail, right? The, the, because in either case, when when should you deny someone the right to walk around free? Mm-hmm. Well, it's when they're guilty of a crime. Yeah. When should you let people out and have the right to walk around free? Well, it's when they're innocent, right? <laughs> oh, these are the very things that a trial is going to try to establish, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is to say the proper answer to how to deal with a person can't be reached until after the thing that we're holding them for, mm-hmm. right? Which, which suggests the solution, right? I, I'm going to read the, this is the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Read it. It's one of the first ones that was ever adopted. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state, etc. There's a key word there. Speedy. This person's been waiting for two years for a trial in jail. Right? Now gets out on bond. Yeah, and has been waiting a total of three years. What do you do with your life while you're waiting to determine? Let's pretend you get out on bond. You're accused of being mur- mm-hmm. of murdering someone. What do you do with your life in the meantime? You go to your job and have a normal... Like, that's that's not going to happen, right? <laughs> like, like, your life is on hold, even if you're not in jail, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to a large degree. What could possibly solve this? Well, it'd help if the trial were speedy, right? Yeah, and actually speedy. Actually speedy. <laughs> I keep thinking of uh, Roadrunner or Speedy Gonzalez. <laughs> this is my, my well, references to I'll that word. Spe- I almost speedy never Gonzales use that word. Is, it's not Roadrunner. That's a different cartoon, right? Right. Yeah, right. Okay. Just, just didn't want anyone to be like, hold on a second. <laughs> I mean, Roadrunner is speedy. and I don't know if he's speedier than Speedy Gonzalez, but. I don't know. This is the this is the real the question. real question. We're gonna Today. we're gonna solve this next episode. We're gonna we're gonna Stand do it frame by frame. To... Watch some old cartoons. <laughs> right, I, it'll be beautiful. We'll see you then. No, no, seriously though, a speedy trial. People don't realize there there are other cases than the ones we've mentioned where a speedy trial. The 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 lack of the speedy trial inevitably causes injustice absolutely right that that's that's not in question you you cannot keep someone who is innocent without doing injustice to them right you're mm-hmm. you, and it doesn't matter if it's the u.s government or if it's some person keeping someone in their basement it's it is unjust to to take the liberty of someone who hasn't done anything wrong who hasn't mm-hmm. committed some injustice um i was there's a there are cases where the most egregious abuser of these of a lot of laws is the CPS, the Child Protective Services, where they, where while you're waiting for your trial, which is handled internally and is not with a jury, mm-hmm. <laughs> in most cases, your kids are gone, and you can't see them mm-hmm. until you start complying and doing things like admitting your guilt and taking classes to learn how to be a parent that doesn't abuse their children, right? It's, it's one of the most ridiculously unjust realms of, of courts in the U.S. But, but obviously, your kid's gone for years before the trial mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's gross injustice. It's absolutely... You know, it's... <laughs> It's vile, and we don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. It's it's not something even on people's radar. You know, and just just like the fact that you have people on a regular basis who are spending years in jail before they're ever tried is something that's that's not a main. It's not. It's not something that people think about on a regular basis. No, no, it's not. It's not common knowledge for whatever reason. Um. Now, obviously, there are uh, there are practical limitations mm-hmm. to, or not limitations, but logistics involved here yeah. in handling a trial quickly. But it's not like it's not like waiting a year is beneficial for gathering information for the trial. 
right? <laughs> it's not like they're actively doing it the entire time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, no, it's 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 in large part just because this is how governments run. You know what I mean? The the justice system is not speedy it's because just slow. What part of the government system is speedy? Right, right. There's the incentives are never there. Uh, the 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 direct connection to speedy and your paycheck is not there. Unlike with Amazon's delivery, which I don't even know when they changed it. I live in Dallas and I can often order something in the morning and get it in the afternoon. <laughs> like, what even is that? Uh, Why can't Amazon run the justice system? <laughs> but, but seriously. Like no, the, it's the, true, though. It's a matter of priorities. It's Yeah, it's a matter of expectations and priorities and, and, uh, and the government – doesn't have an incentive to prioritize speedy. There's there there isn't the natural economic incentives in which every hour is money, mm-hmm. right? That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but surely you could reform them in some way that could get them speedier than years. Years is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ideally, ideally months are unacceptable, right? And we're looking at weeks. No, I mean, I mean. I'm just spitballing here, but just to get the ball rolling of the kind of idea that could that could change the system is that you could have a a hierarchy of criminal charges yeah. that that are levied, and for each of these charges, you know the the DA or the prosecutor has to prevent you know they still have a hearing like they do now you know like mm-hmm. a bond hearing has to prevent that present that they do have evidence right that they do have evidence that means it's likely right. that they committed this crime so you can't right. just automatically choose the highest one in order to keep people behind bars and then based off of whatever that tier is you only have a certain amount of time before you can have that trial you know what I mean? So, yeah. for example, okay, well, you know, you want you want this person, this person, you have evidence that this person committed murder. Here's the evidence. Okay, we see that you do have evidence that is worthy yes, of going yes. to trial. You've got 30 days. From today, trial's going to be in 30 days. They're going to spend 30 days behind bars, and then we're going to have the trial, and we're going to have it out one way or the other. You know, okay, you've got this person for, I mean, obviously misdemeanors, they're not going to be in jail until the trial at all, but you've got, you know, medium cases, you know, violent robbery is, you know, 20 days, or maybe it's 30, just like murder, you know, something like that, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, where there's mm -hmm. some kind of reasonable system put in place where this is how much time you have. And if the prosecutor can't, can't, doesn't have, can't assemble a case in that time, then that person gets to go free until charges are actually ready to be levied against them. Yes, yes. And I can imagine a, a, some kind of prosecutor or someone who, you know, is intimately involved in this in this system listening to this and being like, you don't understand how uh-huh. many points the case is bottleneck. Mm-hmm. No, I, I do. I get, I get that there are probably a dozen points at which things bottleneck. And it's, I'm not trying, we're not trying to lay blame on the prosecuting's office or anything like that. You would have to change a lot You'd have for to- trials to be speedy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You 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 would have to get into the nuts and bolts of it. You'd probably have to change the resources given to the prosecutors. You'd have to change all kinds of things. But but for writing what looks to me like a grievous and commonplace wrong, mm-hmm. that seems like it should be a priority. Yeah, that 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 reshaping the entire judicial system. Man, talking is hard. No, you're absolutely right that I'm oversimplifying it, saying just give this 30-day time limit for the prosecutor. That's an example of what I'm saying it should look like, but what goes on behind the scenes in order to create a situation where that's possible, you're absolutely right. I mean, you'd have to have more judges on the docket so that you can try more cases on a regular basis. Maybe, maybe, yeah, I don't know. You'd have to have a system where you can get people, get jurors more quickly because right now the way the jury system is set up is super slow. But all of those things are possible. You know, right. you, can, you can do things more efficiently. Yeah. I mean, it's not like <laughs> – yeah, I, I, I just keep thinking of there, – there are a variety of spheres in life in which we see such incredible efficiency that there's no question that it's possible that this could be more efficient. And it could be much more efficient. And and there's no question that the – because the incentives are bad, that it's prob- that it's in many ways not just – not as efficient as it could be, but in 
but strategically inefficient and poorly designed and so on. Um, but you're absolutely right that you would need some kind of governing thing, something that you say, this is what it should look like. And then we rethink the rest of the system. We say, what's an acceptable time limit? 30 days for a complicated murder case or something. And then you look at all the other pieces and you say, how do we make this happen? What else has yeah, to change? What are these 12 bottlenecks? Talk to the yes. prosecutors, talk to the defense yeah. attorneys, talk to the judges, talk to the the bureaucrats who are in charge of assembling the juries, mm -hmm. talk to all of these people and all these processes and find out what the problems are and, and cut through them. Yeah, and it would be interesting, and we should look into this at some point, see see if there are other places that do this better. I'm sure there are. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are. And I know I know at different points in American history, we've had speedy trials, you know, really speedy compared to what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. right? um, it, and it's not like the judges aren't going through. I mean, the prosecutors discard a lot of cases. There are a lot of cases that never are prosecuted, let alone tried, because because of a lack of resources. Mm -hmm. And so you just let the least important ones go. You you offer deals, you do all kinds of things because you just don't have the resources to fully pursue the slightest injustice, you know, and, and give it give it uh, as much time as the people involved think it should take. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's not like all of these cases are being tried. It, do we just need to work through a backlog? Like, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, like, like surely, surely we could all of the work. I'm not saying necessarily that they need to do more work, right? The more cases should be tried. I'm saying it's, it's a matter of trying the ones we have now in a way that they're done closer to when they're to when they're committed, right? It's mm -hmm, not, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily more work. It's just organized differently. Yeah, and, but, I, and yeah. I would argue that just from a, a practical standpoint, that that is more work. You know, I mean, from a logistics standpoint, like as someone who who's in charge of moving things for a living, you know, to to have a deadline that's closer to when you first find out about something is more work. That may, you know what I mean? Like true. like same yeah, like yeah. with Amazon, you know, you're moving the same amount of product, but to move it a week from when you order it than a day from when you order it does require more work for the same amount of movement. You know what I mean? No, you're correct. You're correct. And that is that, a very that's real right. cost. That's right. But it isn't necessarily, you know, twice as much work because it is no. the same amount uh -huh. of movement. You just have to move things around in such a way to make that possible, which does require more effort. But you're right. But it's definitely you're right. possible. They, that requires a level of organization and things that is going to require more effort and inconsistent to, to be cost. things ready you're right yeah. you're right that is correct that is correct it would increase the cost um but i think in the long run i think it'd be i think it'd be not only worth it for the sake of abstract principles and morality you know th that this would be better to have uh to to deal with things you know it, it would eliminate a lot of these problems we're talking about with regards to bail as well as numerous other injustices at different points in the system mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but that it would that it would be uh I, I think it'd be a, a cost that would be, you, you never know with government agencies and the way they're using the money anyway. <laughs> like, the very process of it may end up being cheaper, not because it, like you but said, just it because should cost more, but just because you've re-examined everything and realized right. all these inefficiencies right. that are just costing of, money when they shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, that it, it may be that these these bottlenecks are not just ways to save money but actual ways that more money is spent but anyway the whole bail thing is like you said it's a, it's it's a, a system that intends to do something when we need a system that intends to do several things which requires changing the whole system yeah. and and one more thing i'd like to add about bail reform is that when you're looking at bail reform when i'm looking at bail reform in a world where you still have to wait two or three years for a trial what mm -hmm. I would look at more than anything else is what is their threat to society? And mm -hmm. that's what should be considered in that hearing versus what the bail amount should be. Yes. You know, that, that that it's something that should be considered much more seriously and maybe also why we should consider 
medium options of things that can be done. Maybe incorporating things like house arrest on a more regular basis because there are going to be more people who need to be restricted, who can't just yes. roam free for three years, but we don't want to throw you know, a huge group of people into prison before ever being convicted of a crime. Yes, and, that's a good that's And that's a good something point. that I would look at. That's a good point. And and you could uh and you could combine that with some kind of remuneration for people who are innocent during that time. And perhaps I would guess this is probably already in place to some degree. No. No. That you should there should should be some kind of remuneration for someone who spent two years in jail waiting. Is difficult for people who are convicted and then spend years in prison and are eventually exonerated. And then get exonerated. Rarely get any kind of any kind <sighs> of remuneration for anything. That's it. Upsetting. Does happen sometimes, and it's very awesome when it does. But for the most part, they say my bad, and then and then you both go your separate ways. Oh my gosh, I. I believe you, but part of me just but, hopes but that that's I know, not true. But I know nothing. I have not heard of a single case where someone was remunerated just for spending time in jail before the Waiting trial. Waiting for the case. Because that's just considered part of due process, which is disturbing. You know what I mean? That's that not, That if you spend yeah. two years in jail and then are found innocent, I would argue that the state has wronged you and you yeah. deserve some kind of recompense. Like I believe right. that you any, should be able to sue the state and say you right. any you, fair mm -hmm. any fair conception of justice would say the state has committed injustice there, mm -hmm. right? The state doesn't get a pass because because what? Because it's <laughs> because it was acting out of good faith is the current argument. Well, we thought you were guilty, so <laughs> no. But that's how this that's how the current system is. Is you know yeah we yeah, think yeah. you're guilty and therefore we can do whatever we need to. In order to find that out, however many years it takes, which is all based on us anyways, you know, you have no control over that. Right, which becomes a much more plausible argument when it's speedy, right? When mm -hmm. it, if, it's, if it's a week of your time and there was good reason maybe to suspect or a couple weeks or even a month, but years, it's, yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. And this is only the beginning. <laughs> this bail reform is the lightest topic we've decided to pick up. <laughs> well, yeah, I think we ended up spending more time on it than we were planning on it. Um, because the other thing we wanted to talk about was, uh, was self-defense. And in particular, self-defense when it comes not just to an imminent threat, but to other threats. You know, whether you call them constant or, or something else. Um, and that goes back to uh, Crystal Kaiser. The Crystal Kaiser case is one that received attention because she, uh, because after Kyle Rittenhouse's verdict, a lot of people have been saying, hey, you know, Kyle got out because of self-defense. You know, Crystal Kaiser should be able to use self-defense in her case as well. And obviously her case is a little bit different than Kyle Rittenhouse's case. Kyle Rittenhouse is being chased by by Joseph Rosenbaum. You know, he's being, you know, someone's trying to take his gun. He's being hit in the head with a skateboard. He, you know, a gun's being pointed at him. These are all cases of imminent threat for <coughs> self-defense in a more classic, in a more classic way. Like that's when we talk about self-defense. This is usually this is the kind imagine, of thing yeah. that it looks like. You know, someone points a gun at me, and so I point a gun back at them. Someone tries to kill me, and so I kill them. That's typically how self-defense is used. But there's a whole nother aspect of self-defense that's rarely talked about, and it's it's usually used in the sense of, of domestic abuse, and it's what do you do when someone has control over your life? but isn't actively trying to kill you. And, you know, so in the case of Crystal Kaiser, wait, you know, before, let yeah. me just interject, interject before we get started. We are going to talk about not the details, but certainly the general overview of domestic abuse cases. And so consider yourself warned. Thank you for that warning. I know you meant for the audience, but now I feel warned. Um, <laughs> consider yourself warned, Brad. <laughs> This is this is at least heavy stuff. It's not going to be graphic, but 
No, it, it is. It is heavy. I mean, in the case of Crystal Kaiser, you know, she's a victim of, of sex trafficking. She's being sexually abused. You know, her, her freedom is being restricted in addition to that. Um, exactly what degree of freedom she had, you know, what degree of abuse she's suffering is is a matter of 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 specific details that I'm not privy to and didn't want to dig too much into. But the bottom line is, is that in general the her argument you know the argument that well she had no choice but to kill her abuser in order to escape is very rarely very rarely stands in court very rarely has that been an effective defense and that's when i found that out i was surprised i was surprised that that kind of argument wasn't wasn't given much weight by by courts and I and I couldn't quite figure out why and me and Dan have talked about it for a while and and there yeah, do we, appear to be some reasons for it but how valid those reasons are is an interesting question. Yeah, looking into general self defense laws in in most of the states there are a few states that have kind of unique self defense laws but most of them are 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 fairly similar and within a range of the castle doctrine and stand your ground thing. I'm not going to get into the details of those but in each of these. In most states, you have a written exception within the law that says, hey, the circumstances when it's a case where the two people living in the same household, this, these general rules of self-defense do not apply. And they may tweak it a little bit. They may completely uh, eliminate it. But one way or another, they they... The general self-defense claims simply are not applied to these cases. Mm-hmm. And um, were applied in a more limited way. I I lost what I was going to say. It's uh, and that puts you into a strange situation. It's not like, and and I think the reasoning for this, like, if you say, why would you change that? Why would you change that standard? If it's not because it's suddenly immoral in certain circumstances, I mean, this is if this is a good general principle, self-defense, then you would want it universally applicable. But it seems to be particularly because of how difficult it is to navigate in these circumstances. Yeah, and and the the Crystal Kaiser cases is a little bit different from these domestic abuse cases because typically a domestic abuse case is between two spouses. You know, you've got You've got a spouse abusing another spouse. Often it's, you know, a husband abusing a wife, but there's also a significant number of cases, a large minority of cases where, you know, the wife is abusing the husband or, you know, boyfriend abusing a girlfriend, girlfriend abusing a boyfriend. And that's a domestic abuse and is a little bit messier. With Kaiser, it's different because it's not... It's not her spouse who's abusing her. It is just a, a you know, it is a man who's abusing... You know, I mean, at this point, she was, I mean, he started abusing her when she was 16. She kills him when she's 17. And <laughs> honestly, honestly, I mean, the, the domestic abuse cases can be messy and can be complicated. For me, the Kaiser one is pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. You know what? You have this man who who has been, uh, who has been abusing, you know, Crystal Kaiser, who has actually been been selling her to other men to have sex with her and and at one point physically attacked her at least once and and in response she she kills him and and you have to you have to believe that this 17 year old girl who's been abused for a long time doesn't feel like she has a lot of options and of course the automatic response from the government from the state is always well you need to leave that environment you need to go to the police and report them and Anyone who's, you know, listened to crime junkies or <laughs> or seen any of the many movies about these kind of issues is you'll understand that when you're in those situations, the options that you have are always going to feel very limited. Even if you technically have more options, in reality, it's not that way. When you're being held by someone, you don't have options in the way that normal people have options, especially when you've been there a long time and you're a minor and it's 
your whole world is different is is just this person and, and this world that you're in and your options there there is no going to the police in in so many of these cases not always but in so many of these cases there's constant threats that if you go to the police you know you're going to be killed or you're going to have this or that and in these cases it seems pretty clear to me not that they have to kill their their you know mm-hmm. their abuser but that if they do that the argument of self-defense is legitimate. That is legitimate. I feel like there should be a self-defense clause that every state should have that says it doesn't have to be just imminent danger. It can also be constant danger. Right. Um, a great example of this that that actually did was on featured on Crime Junkies, which is how I heard about it. I don't listen to Crime Junkies, but but my wife does. And it's about this Canadian case where where this uh this woman Jane Hirschman was uh was married to to a an an abuser who who physically abused her on a regular physically and sexually abused her for for years also abused their children and and made many threats that there's no way she could get out you know that if she went to the police you know that that she he would kill her etc cetera, etc cetera. and so one day she kills him in his sleep. And according to classic self-defense laws, there is no justification for that. While he was asleep, there was no way for him to hurt her, right? He's asleep. Right. She could have technically grabbed her children and physically left their home, right? In that sense, there is no self-defense. But it's not that simple. And because of the threats that he, that he levied against her, because of the fact that they're married, because of the fact that they have joint custody of their children, which means she can't just flee the state. You know, he can he can accuse her of kidnapping her her children. She has to go to the police. It's her only option. She can't just disappear. She has to go to the police. And when she goes to the police, there is a chance that he absolutely can get to her. There is a chance that he does know someone at the police, you know, like he may have threatened, and that that he may come and he may kill her and may kill her children. And the argument is made that she believes that, and because she believes that, and it's a reasonable fear, that she does have the right to self-defense. And she actually ends up... um being not guilty for murder, um, there end up being some appeals and she ends up getting convicted of manslaughter and spending a short time of uh, a, a short time in prison, which is so much better than 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 murder. And you can argue back and forth about the the, the manslaughter, but the the point is, is it was a groundbreaking case in Canada about these domestic abuse cases because because she was going to be convicted of of murder. Because according to the basic self-defense laws, there's no, there's no, there's no place for that, for that constant threat. And that constant threat needs to be considered because it is very real, even though it's different. It is. I mean, it's not, an important part of the, the uh, self-defense plea is that you have, that it is reasonable for you to be to fear for your life. If in a case where you you use self-defense and actually kill someone, you have to be able to you know, justify that level of force. And that generally means you've got to be able to, to make a claim that you're reasonably afraid for your life. Mm-hmm. The fact that the person was asleep, which in several of these cases, we have another one where, where a woman did that and uh, uh, she had been essentially tortured in things and kills... <laughs> kills her husband in his sleep um, and is then convicted of murder. I believe mm-hmm. she's convicted, right? Yeah. The, uh, you talking about uh, Nicole Adamondo? Nicole Adamondo, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, he has a history of abuse, you know. The, the, she, uh, she kills him in his sleep, and the idea is there's no pressing threat. There's no imminent threat. There's no raised gun at you. There's no one attacking you. Now, if he had been maybe hitting her and she grabs a knife and like tries to get him off and he dies of the wounds, right? That's more classic self-defense. Mm-hmm. Now, again, that becomes complicated in a domestic abuse situation where both people are in the home and there's a relationship and a history. And uh, you can see how the courts would have a difficult time sorting out the facts and, and showing these things depending on 
the evidence that she has uh, of the abuse and of the threat, right? You've got, you've got two people sitting in a home together regularly, and one of them walks out alive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's almost by definition, you're not going to have witnesses, right? You're not mm-hmm. going to have, uh, there's going to be time for them to clean it up. There's going to be time for all these things, yeah, right? You, all you, this you complicates don't have the. What you have in a normal self defense trial, like Kyle Rittenhouse, where you, I mean, that one was, was so clean in comparison because you had, right, you had video videos. footage, you have witness testimony, you've got, you know, all this material evidence that stacks together so that. In general, they actually had a very clear picture of what happened. The whole case revolved around, you know, the ramifications, the legal ramifications of what happened, but not necessarily of what physically happened that night. You know, most of that data was pretty concrete. When it's domestic abuse and, and you know, and then a subsequent, you know, death, what actually happened that night becomes much more complicated and what what happened in that household in the years prior is much more complicated yes yes it's a i mean ideally ideally she has been documenting things and has some evidence that can show that the the wounds she has um you know connect to this man and all these things but but it's just the factual side of this case in which they establish what happened is very difficult in a lot of these cases. But the principle shouldn't be that difficult. Mm-hmm. As Brad was saying, that if you have a threat, that if you go to the police, you will be killed. It's possible you go to the police, you've been abused, you, you actually have every, you know, the, your story is true. And the police, for whatever reason, don't believe you, mm-hmm. or you don't have the evidence to prove it in court, or you don't have, or it's going to take time. And there, there are some places, Alabama is a, is a state that has this requirement, to make a self-defense plea in a domestic situation, you have to have a court injunction against the person. This requires and multiple visits. And if you don't, visits. then you can't make the self-defense You can't, plan. yeah. The self-defense and that means you table. have to have already made, already started that process before you needed self-defense, which right. has obviously some practical problems. Right. In most of these cases, that may have gotten, got, that may have led to your death, mm-hmm. right? You start that process, the person finds out about it, that may be, that may be it for you. You start, you try and record them abusing you, right? And they go, what are you going to do with, you know, they catch you. This is, this is an extremely difficult situation for you to interact with the police. And it's, and it's actually dangerous to you. The idea that you can just leave with that perpetual threat hanging over your head is, is just not, that's not a, that's not a, What's the word? That, that doesn't really take into account not only what they're experiencing emotionally, but really what they should rationally be afraid of. Mm-hmm. I think it's entirely rational for a woman in those circumstances to shoot the man in his sleep. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't think that's overdoing it or that she should have taken that opportunity to flee to the police in some cases that that may have been the solution. Now, now what do you do with that person and how do you sort that out and, in in court, hopefully you can you can mount the evidence for a self-defense plea. But in most cases, that's not even on the table. Mm-hmm. No, and, and that's the thing is that the steel man argument to all of this is, well, the problem is, is if. <coughs> <laughs> the problem is, if you get covid, yeah. you're die. <laughs> I'm over here dying. Um, <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is that if if this becomes the new self-defense, that that if you've been threatened by your spouse who's also been abusing you in some form, you have the right to kill them, even in their sleep, then and combine that with the fact that so many so many murders are already um spouse to spouse. That spouses kill their spouses on a regular basis. 
(laughs) Relative to other murders. Relative to other, yeah, Yeah. obviously it's not that. Excuse me. Thank you for clarifying. Roughly 50% of marriages end with your spouse killing. We're talking about court cases. We're talking about murder. In that realm, a large number of those, a statistically significant number of those are spouses killing their spouses, which means that if you create a easy legal defense that you just say, oh, my spouse was abusing me, but there's no record of it. And they threatened that if I went to the police, they would kill me. And so I had no choice but to kill me. You could create a scenario where a huge number of people get off scot-free using this self-defense argument, even though there's no physical evidence, even of a fight necessarily. You know what Uh I mean? uh And I think that's, that's the, uh, the potential the potential fear at least kind of like the potential fear after the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict was, you know, anyone can kill anyone as long as they feel threatened, which is funny because that is kind of how it works now. And yet in, (laughs) in, in, in terms of regular self-defense that if you're reasonably afraid for your life, you have a right to self-defense given certain Mm -hmm. parameters based on the state that you live in doesn't change the fact that, that there is still some evidence that needs to be presented in such a way right. to to argue that. And and the same should be true for domestic abuse cases. You know, our our goal here isn't to create a situation where, you know, if a spouse dies, we say, eh, well, it was probably self-defense, so don't worry about it. You know, you still need evidence. Yeah, right. These details are really important. The The problem we're bringing up right now is that right now the burden of proof is set up in such a way like that Alabama state law that there are many cases like Crystal Kaiser where everyone in the public is like, yeah, this person was just a victim. And and yes, they did something that may or may not be completely innocent. You know, there may be some, there may be some, depending on the, the specific details of the case, because something we want to remember is that we don't want to overgeneralize. Right, is right. that the details of every one of these cases are different, and those details do play a large factor in what happens. You know, we're not saying that domestic abuse in every case should result in the the abuser's death. You know what I mean? That is not the solution mm-hmm. that we're <laughs> proposing. We're also not saying that that all of these people are innocent. We're just saying these there needs to be a shift in how we view these cases and how the law views these cases. And, and that's something that, you know, like that, that one case I mentioned with Jane Hirschman did in Canada is it started to shift that perspective. And maybe that's something we can get as people have more attention on Crystal Kaiser and her case is that we start to shift both the public view and also some of the laws, you know, the mm-hmm. judges rule based the judges and the jury's rule based off of what the law is and maybe these laws need to be changed so that there is a place for these people who are clearly victims of horrible horrible circumstances who don't end up spending the rest of their lives in prison afterwards you know what i mean you we don't yes. want to create a legal situation where people are are in horrible situations who are being abused who have as far as they can see, no option except continue to be abused or kill their abuser and spend their less, the rest of their lives in prison. Because yeah. I think you could talk to some of these people. I think you might talk to Jane Hirschman, who who at one point was going to spend the rest of her life in, in prison, and she would say, yeah, I was willing to pay that price mm-hmm. for my children. You know, her children were being abused. You know what I mean? I would I would pay that price. You know what I mean? But doesn't mean that the law can't change so that they don't have to pay that price for something that they, in many ways, were forced to do because of someone else's choices. Right. You see this in a, in a couple cases. Uh, there are things where, like, uh, in some ways, this is a, a kind of movie trope in crime shows where you get you get the person who who kills someone who is and that someone is truly evil and doing terrible things to people, and the person says. And has this conversation with the police or with the lawyers or whatever, and is like, yeah, it was worth it because mm-hmm. I'm protecting these people. Mm-hmm. And what is worth it? My me in jail for life for murder versus uh letting them continue what they're doing. But what if that weren't the only solution? Mm-hmm. What if what if we could say 
maybe in some cases, killing that person was not the perfect solution per se, but there are circumstances in which the police really aren't in, aren't always in a position to help, right? Where you can't, Mm -hmm. again, I, I can't help but think that sometimes people assume that's the police's job, right? And so, so to take that into your own hands automatically makes you some kind of criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it should be that way for, for the same reason self-defense laws should be justified and that there, there should be some possibility in certain circumstances for people to be justified in what appears to be murder, but is actually a kind of self-defense, mm-hmm. right? It's a, mm-hmm. it's a self-defense, but not in one in which they're being, uh, in which the threat is imminent in the sense that they're someone's pointing a gun at them or actually trying to hit them or something like that. No, absolutely. And and, yeah, I, and on the flip side, the other thing we should look at is, is, is obvious is trying to create a situation where people aren't placed in that situation. You know what I mean? Yes. That the reality yes. that, that people are ever in that situation where they feel like there's no option except to kill their abuser is really a condemnation of the system. You know what I mean? More than anything else that... that yeah, system and society in general. I mean... Mm-hmm. You, no, you're you, absolutely you, right. System you hope is, that is you're, too strict. Right. This could be your friends, right? This could be someone you know. Mm-hmm. And you and you hope that that's not the case and that they would reach out to you or that you'd be the kind of person that, that you know, could maybe... Obviously, it's a... You can't expect your... Put the weight of being able to see see that this is happening on yourself necessarily but but you hope that you we would be in such a position that someone could someone in that situation could leave and go to your house you know or something like that and and you know have have the help they need from people around them not be so isolated that they can be completely controlled by by someone in this circumstance in a terrible circumstance but yeah it's society and as you said there are some systemic things that could change too yeah, and, and the systemic things are, are are things that have improved, I'd say, in the past few decades. There are many more resources for for people who are in I mean, domestic abuse resources in general have improved greatly mm-hmm. in the past few decades, which which, you know, could have potentially helped those cases. I mean, there are cases that are twenty, thirty years old that that could have had better outcomes. In, yes. In today's world, but it doesn't mean that everything's as good as it could be. Yeah. Um, as we're as we're kind of wrapping up this discussion of of domestic abuse, I just want to kind of clarify what our intention is here. Our, our purpose is is as we're looking at these cases, our goal here is justice, and that is what we want the legal system's goal to be. You know, when we're talking about bail what we're looking at is what is just, you know, and that's why comparing, you know, Crystal Kaiser versus, you know, Daryl Brooks is a good example of that because in both cases, you kind of have the two extremes where in each case, the bail system as it stands now has created an injustice. You know, on the one case where you've got someone who spent two years in jail without ever being convicted of a crime. And then on the other hand, you have someone who after being charged with multiple crimes, serious crimes, is able to walk free a few days later, and because of that, is able to commit another crime that kills several more people. And so on both sides, you see these glaring problems with the the bail system, and our goal when we're trying to rectify those problems is not just to rectify those specific situations, but to come up with rules that are just, that can be applied in different situations. a principle that would would solve both of these and other potential cases, and then and then that gets to uh, the d- domestic abuse and the same thing with domestic abuse laws, and and the final thing that brings me to is that one more solution that we haven't yet talked about is more flexibility in jurors' ability to rule on cases, and what I'm talking about here is basically jury nullification. That one mm-hmm. solution is the fact that when you're in a situation where the jury across the board says this person who's being charged with this crime is clearly the victim, clearly didn't do anything wrong, but as the law is written right now, they are guilty, 
So we're just going to charge them as guilty because that's our hand has been forced. You know what I mean? Our hand has been forced <laughs> by the law. And so we have no options. So one solution to that is saying, well, if you're in that situation as the jury, you have a place to say this law doesn't make sense. So we're not going to convict you. Yeah. And it's, it's an incredibly scary thought for so many people, but really <laughs> it's not that crazy because if you're in a situation where everyone looking at this case is like, yeah, you shouldn't be convicted, but yeah, as the law is written, that's how, what should happen, then don't do it. And, right. and, and allowing that to be an option for a jury is a fantastic idea because the whole purpose of the, the judicial system is innocent until proven guilty is to protect innocence first and by allowing a jury to do that is a great opportunity for just such a thing yeah the reason it's a jury of your peers is so that they can they can in some sense judge you right by by not just determine the the, the way they frame it is the jury is supposed to determine the facts of the case, right? The facts are presented to them and they're, they're supposed to come to, if they can come to a unanimous conclusion as they usually are required to do, um, then the facts have spoken, right? There's, there's a clear, uh, if, if your, if your peers can reach that conclusion, then, then that says something about the nature of the facts and what it appears that you've done. But as Brad was saying, there's, there's more to it than that. This is an opportunity for you to say, and they should be punished or, and they shouldn't be. And, and that's, if that's the ultimate goal is justice on the jurors end, not just determining the facts, but what would be just here, then, then a jury nullification where they would say, it appears that you were guilty of the law, but we deem you innocent because the law is unjust, this is as good a point as any place to check the system and to say, like, who better to and check the system the law is than 12 unjust, people? But that no, the law no. is unjust in this case. In this case. Yes, yes, yes. The, in yes. this case, you there, shouldn't there, suffer the consequences. Jury nullification is not canceling the entire law. Yes. It's yes. just saying the law doesn't actually apply as it was intended in this case. And when Which, you look at it that way, it seems quite reasonable. Well, and that happens all the time. Like the people who make the laws are not able to perceive all Everything. of the con every Obviously circumstance not. in which this law will be and yet applied. We require right. them to based on our current system. Yes, the current system assumes they did, and that we have to interpret it accordingly. And that's that's just not stupid. the case. You, it is stupid. The twelve people who are designed, who are put in this situation, are going to be the best informed on whether or not the law applies in the situation, and they they should make that call. Yeah, I, that's a really helpful clarification. Yeah, people hear jury nullification and they're like, I don't know what this is, but it sounds scary. Yeah, it sounds sounds like anarchy and it's <laughs> it's not supposed to be. It's not it's not actually an, an extreme concept. It's just one that we don't currently use. Mm-hmm. It's just generally not used, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. This has been productive. With that, I guess we'll pause. Thanks for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.